Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to com. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Have you guys heard about this concept going around recently? It's the idea of culture in an organization. You know, I, I worked at Living Social not too long ago and culture was a big deal. And I think it meant something for a while. And then they, they got away from that. And you could feel it throughout the organization. It definitely changed the way people felt, the way employees feel. And I know that's true for many of us. You know, we want to work in an environment where we trust it. We believe in the people and the mission. And that's what a culture is. I think it's a fairly recent phenomenon that it's been named that. However, as we talk about in this week's episode, it is something that goes back, you know, many decades all the way back to the first person running a factory who decided, you know what, we don't need to work them like dogs. Let's uh, let's give them a break. And then they got more out of their employees. So in typical smart people fashion, we went straight to the top. And this week we have on the show Robert Richman. Robert is a culture strategist and was the co-creator of Zappos Insights, an innovative program focused on educating companies on the secrets behind the Zappos culture. Robert builds Zappos Insights from a small website to a thriving multi-million dollar business, teaching over 25,000 students per year. Through his work, Robert has been responsible for improving the employee culture at hundreds of companies like Procter & Gamble, Whole Foods, and Amazon. He's also a sought-after speaker, 
and he's got a new book that just came out called The Culture Blueprint. It's a systematic guide to how a workplace can help people grow. So this was such a fun conversation. I love learning about how to make a workplace better, how to find a place that we vibe with. We talk about that. He actually says you should be flirting with a company in an interview. It's really interesting. And also, if you're in the position of creating that culture or passing it down, how do you do it? What's the best way to get your employees to, to really feel that? And it's not manipulation. I think that's really important. It's something that has to be organic and has to be real. Going to go here to Robert in a second. Guys, make sure you connect with us. Um, sign up for the newsletter. That's the place where we give out any insights we come up with, any giveaways, any deals, anything we're coming out with. And there are some things on the horizon. So make sure you do that at smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, here it is now, our interview with Robert Richmond. All right, Robert, well, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you as we were discussing prior to hitting the record button. Uh, you were the mastermind behind the Zappos culture, right? Isn't that no, the truth? Come on. No, 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 no. I mean, this this is a misinterpretation that I think it's good to to, to clear up here. Yeah. <laughs> um, basically, no, Zappos was, was doing really really well before i got there and and tony shea and the leadership there are are really responsible for the zappos culture um i was called in by tony to turn the culture into a product so tony realized there's so much interest coming in about the culture and service and so many companies wanted to learn and they would just let anybody come in for free and take a tour or meet with people that tony said you know what there's a business here because we're just being so overwhelmed by the response so my role was to figure out how to turn all that that interest into a business which we created as zappos insights mm, okay very interesting yeah and i, I was bringing that up because as many of our listeners know we interviewed tony a long time ago and uh, the, I'm just, I mean, they're the poster child for kind of the company you want to work for, but yeah. so it's interesting to get a chance to talk to you, somebody who had a, you know, a big role in that. One of the questions actually, I didn't have this thought out prior to, but Tony bringing you in, obviously, as you mentioned, they had a pretty strong culture. Why did he feel like he needed somebody else to, to really brainstorm and come up with these ideas as opposed to go with what he had done so far? Yeah, it was Zappos is definitely very well known for for hiring and promoting from within. So it was um, an exception case of, of me coming in this way. The reason was because it was about creating a business model that was completely different from what Zappos had been doing. Everything was uh, business to consumer, consumable goods, and this would be an information play, but really an experiential one about sharing experiences and helping people learn about culture. So it was a completely different business model. And um, he saw how passionate I was about it and how much I had a desire to come in there and, and help and build up a business within Zappos. And, you know, he, he's really he's really big on passion and, and, and going with, with his gut on people. And, and he took the risk and brought me in. Well, and I mean, you have quite an impressive resume under your belt. So I want to I want to get to that. And I know you know, on your website, you you kind of are a culture architect. That's what mm -hmm. you go with. And I love that. I think it's such a cool description. How does one become a culture architect? Let's get a little bit about your background. Sure. <laughs> How did I? Yeah. Um, it's, it, I, I realized I love studying cultures that, um, that are, are cult-like. 
you know, and not actual cults because that gets really scary, right? <laughs> but cult-like, like I was really obsessed with uh, with with the Apple culture for for a really long time. I was a real early devotee of that. Um, Burning Man, I went to to many times in, in in the earlier days, and and I just became fascinated with this idea of of so much dedication and how they're based on very just core simple principles. And that that's the real key to creating strong groups and culture is that there's not a whole lot of rules. It's just a lot of belief and principles and values that can be easily understood and summarized. And you're either in on that or you're out of it and you're either turned off by it or you're turned on by it. You know, for the longest time, people hated Apple, right? Like they would just have so many haters about it, especially in the early computer days, but had just as many people who loved it. And that kind of polarizing effect I think is really fascinating because to me the strongest cultures are not the ones that everybody would love, but the ones that polarize, the ones where people either say, wow, this is really for me or this is really not for me. And I've spent a lot of time through my life being in those kinds of of, of environments, putting myself in these type of situations to understand what drives this kind of passion and and loyalty beyond anything that's really interesting and i know you've you've worked for or you've done this type of work for a lot of huge companies such as procter and gamble whole foods amazon so how did you get to build i mean i'm always fascinated by how did you build a resume that allowed you and and companies such as them wanted you to come in and work on something as core to them as their culture um it, it, I, I certainly developed a lot through Zappos. We had 25,000 people coming through a year. I think that's still that many coming through the Zappos Insights program. Um, and they would bring their their culture challenges. And the, the, the trend I noticed was it wasn't, you, you know, you say these great company names, but it was really more like small teams or divisions of it coming through. So it wasn't like, you know, the, the, the CEO of it said it. And these are these are all companies that I've worked for. They tend to have great cultures anyway, but it it, it would be, Companies or groups or teams that are growing fast or doing something really innovative. That's what I noticed was the trend out of all those kind of companies coming through or teams was that they were suddenly growing really fast and said, wait a minute, it's not the product, it's not our services, it's not the market. None of these things are really really running the show. It's culture itself of our team that's guiding it. And it's kind of like the frog in boiling water idea that that when a frog is in boiling water, it understands it's hot and jumps out, whereas – if it's if it's just slowly boiling, you don't really notice it. And mm-hmm. so when a company grows really fast, suddenly you see all the things that are broken as well as going well. And that's when companies notice it's culture that makes the difference. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating because as you mentioned, when it's when it's growing so fast, it's one of those things where culture, in my opinion, and I'd love to hear yours, is one of the hardest things to scale. And so sure, when you have two or three people or ten you know, in one room, it might be easy to to say this is what we believe in. But as you bring on more and more people and spread out geographically, it's really tough to take that message and uh, get everyone else to be believers and follow it. Yeah, well, I, I think culture exists in language. That's 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 where it lives between us and communications. And I, I I tell people to I'm really wary when anybody says get people to believe um, because. That that starts to get into ways of manipulation when mm. we're getting people to do something as opposed to really finding out and learning, do they want this or do they not? That, that's what the best organizations have is that it's opt-in and that you don't get people to. And in fact, strong ones, people will opt out. They'll say, wow, this is not for me and you don't even have to get them out because it's that clear. And so 
I, I, I'm really about creating uh, brands and cultures that are so strong that people self-identify and they say, wow, this is really for me. I'm in or wow, this is not for me and I'm out. And then you don't have to get people to do things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And now real quick, while we're, we were still kind of on the topic of how you got to, to where you are, I noticed that your undergrad, you went to Northwestern with a degree in film. And I'm yeah. really interested in that transition, like what, what made you do that? And then how did you transition from that into what you're doing now? Sure. Film to me, uh, all, uh, every story tends to follow the, the arc of the hero, but, uh, Joseph Campbell, monomyth. If, if, if you look up his work, there's these structures to the story where the hero goes through a journey and they, they learn, they transform, and they affect an entire group of people as a result. So all of Hollywood, the model, follows this transformational structure of culture and people and individuals. And I realized as I saw people taking on culture change in the organization, it follows the same model as, as that Hollywood story model. You, you start with somebody who's, who's not qualified to do it, somebody who says, wow, I can't affect the culture. Wow, I, I, I don't think I can do this, but who wants to. And through the journey of doing it, they become the person qualified to do it. And like a Hollywood movie – they find mentors, they find support, they go through tests and challenges, they, they have these big wins and big losses. It's a very dramatic storyline of culture change. And so I, did, I just, of course didn't realize at the time I just loved movies and just was really inspired by them. But only since really codifying this work as, as, as culture work have I seen that, that film is this kind of encapsulated version of a culture change. Sure. And then how, so how did you uh, make that transition? You were, you know, in you know, studying film, graduated. Well, what came next for you? <laughs> well, I actually made it before I even graduated because I, I started to realize how much the real life culture change I wanted more than making films of it. And as a young person, I didn't feel like I had great stories to tell yet. <laughs> so um, I, I, I did, I started a web development company in college and I also started a magazine uh, with 25 people that I was managing. So before even finishing the major, I was, uh, you know, looking to, to document and create culture through this magazine. And I was managing 25 people. So I was already getting an experience of, of, of culture creation um, during the major. Absolutely. And right there, did you kind of recognize, all right, this is something I, I'm fascinated by. I want to I wanna go into this. Yeah, I noticed it, I, it was fascinating. And I really discovered how dark it is as well. Um, you know, my, my team was, was as, as they were completely inspired by me because they, had, they weren't getting paid. Um, you know, we had to figure out ways to, to, for the magazine to survive and, and, and all these things. Like, they were really driven and inspired by me, but also they were just as much worried for me because I was burning both ends of the candle. Mm -hmm. I was burnt out. I was stressed out. Sometimes I would yell at them. Like, I realized just how dark leadership can get. And th there's, there's something to that as well. So I was inspired by it, but I was also a, like this cautionary tale of, wow – you can really lose it going down this route as well. Yeah, you know, I love that idea of, uh, and I mean, I say I love it just that I'm fascinated by it. The idea of leadership can be a dark place. And, and I think about it in terms of even, I, I work for a small nonprofit and I was the first employee and now we've grown to about 15. And so have some of that leadership role, but it's still a nonprofit and a startup. And so you have a lot of demands and you want other people to, to do a certain thing or feel a certain way or be motivated. And I think that's a lot of where the culture comes in. But it's difficult when you're tasked with so many different jobs, when you're not just the manager of people. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Absolutely. And how did you, or how do you now, especially after all the work you've done, help people understand that they need to build this culture, they need to build this environment where people want to succeed as opposed to they feel they have to? Personally, what I found with this is that I don't, I, like, like I said, I don't manipulate or, or, or convince. So if somebody doesn't already get the culture is important, I don't tend to even be talking to them because it's something that's so experiential. I talk about this, this in my book that's coming out, um, The Culture Blueprint, about how our beliefs and values are shaped by experiences. If you have an experience of a great culture, then you get it and then you want it. If you don't, it's like it can't even be explained. So I don't want to waste my time doing that, it, it, and, and I want to honor what anybody wants. If they don't want great culture, then that's their prerogative. But this is going to come the, – the culture movement change is going to happen through those groups and people that are really passionate already, and then the late adopters will see that later. Do you think that culture has always been a very important part of businesses, or is it something that's only a recent phenomenon given – uh, you know, workers are they, they feel they need more out of an organization when it comes to culture as opposed to the industrial revolution where it's just go churn out as many cogs as possible. Right. I, I think it's it's always been important. I mean, even back then, the, uh, the the smarter factory owners started to realize, wait a minute, if I actually give my people breaks and give them vacation, they last longer than mm. if I just work them to the ground like a machine. So culture's always been there. I think the reason it's becoming more and more of a hot topic is because business is becoming more and more about communications. You know, back then there were just so many different type of job roles, many of, the, of which were physical labor, but now everybody is on email. Everybody's just communicating, phone calls, meetings, presentations. It's like everything about business is becoming communications and culture exists in communications. So that's why I think it's becoming more and more important because they realize, wait a minute, our whole business is riding on communications like marketing, for example, and, it, and communications is the core of culture. So it's just becoming more and more relevant now that everything's getting so information-based and network-based. Can you dive in a little bit more to that, that statement that communication is based on culture? Because I think I understand it, but I'd love to hear your through and through explanation of that. It's, it, it goes both ways. I really say it the opposite way that, that culture is based on communication, but, but uh, communication is also affected by culture. So if, if you think about it, um, culture is just people. People are relationships. And what makes up relationships? It's, it's pretty much only communication, except you know, certainly if you go the family route, that culture is, is different because there's all kinds of politics that can come with that where you, you can never not be someone's son or daughter, etc. But in the workplace or any place where people can be there voluntarily, the only dynamic that's between people is communication. That's basic sender-receiver type of dynamics, just like a network, just like you know the packet-switching kind of computer networks that are going on right now. So the language that people use directly affects it. How I tell you, give you, for example, and this all comes down to speci very specific examples rather than just broad overstatements. So for example, if I give you feedback on something, the language that I use to convey that can be anything that, that, that directs you to improve versus could ruin your day, all based on the words I choose and the tone I use. And that, imagine that times 30,000. Those in small individual conversations are those units of culture. 
That is such a fascinating point because, I mean, I've worked for a number of people in a number of different roles, and I can say without a doubt that you hit the nail on the head. An email can have the same message, the same content, but vary in you know how they wrote it or the tone and even an email and yeah. can change. Yeah, you know what? I want to do that to... Wow. I'm even to I'm going to go look elsewhere for employment. Yeah. And and the most important part with this isn't like saying what's right or wrong. It's alignment. So, for example, I know some companies that say that that, that they say in their communications, it's it's written. It's a standard that please and thank you are assumed. They don't say please mm. or thank you. Like that's their culture. They're fast moving. They're boom, 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 boom. In others, I've heard, heard them say that please and thank you are absolutely vital, that it makes them feel more human. And neither is right and neither is wrong. The, 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 the tenets of a strong culture is that there's alignment and that people are all agreed and explicitly agreed to whatever that standard is. That's fascinating. So when you go in or what you've seen is the first thing, let's make sure we get an alignment on everything. Because, no. Okay. What, what is it? Well, first, the, the very first thing is, what are we actually aligning to? Mm. That's most important. Like, what is what is most important to us above anything? What is it that if people would come in and and see us and see our product, that the first thing that they would be impressed by is, wow, they are really innovative or excellent or great design or of service or they're really happy. What what are the most important things that that you want that to be? And then only then you can align it. And and. Clearly, I'm very much generalizing here. There's, there's whole processes, some of which I write about, about how you find that vision, how you determine those values, how you execute on them. But alignment can be, actually be a dangerous word without something, a principle to align to. Because I've seen this happen, where if you use alignment a lot without a principle, then what you're really saying is you better align with the CEO mm. or you better align with your manager and get in line. I guess what I'm wondering now is, is culture more important for the employees or is it more important for the message that the organization is sending to consumers? Well, it's, it's important for both. The thing is, uh, Tony actually quoted this. He said, uh, brand is the lagging indicator of culture. So the brand will feel it, but much later. So it's more, it's, 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 you'll, you'll have a higher leverage affecting it internally and have a sooner chance to, to catch it internally but there essentially it's the two sides of the same coin culture is the internal side of that coin brand is the external side ah okay and then brand follows culture right gotcha i saw this quote on your website it says once you learn what drives culture you can design the future and i was hoping you could explain a little bit more what you meant by that it's kind of like everybody's operating in culture all the time but we don't really stop to just think about it and think about these these principles that are driving culture and there there are there are many of them um, that like like so for example one of them is that it's always co-created I, I always kind of cringe when somebody says that they're going to be the chief culture officer or this person is now in charge in cult of culture because that's that's you're taking on Omaha Beach by yourself mm -hmm. you know it's it's it doesn't exist with one person exists with everybody and it's so this it's this bizarrely simple concept that everything is co-created and i see it when leaders get that they look so relaxed they are so chill because they just do everything in this group like way whereas the leaders and people who i see who are really really stressed out they're trying to do it on their own they're trying to take responsibility for everything so this principle of co-creation when you really get it you're like wait a minute oh 
it's it's easy. It, it involves giving up a lot of control, and that can be really scary for people. But it's a principle of culture that, oh, this is happening anyway. That's kind of what I find funny about this culture work is that it's things that are happening anyway that you just don't realize. Does that make sense? It doesn't actually. Could you – Could you? Uh, I mean I think I get it, but could you go into that a little more? Sure. So another example with this is that people – this idea that you can't actually make anybody do anything. It's it, it it it's so obvious, but it's so invisible at the same time. Like people, bosses, employers, CEOs think that they can really make their staff do something, but you can't. And people will resist things in the most subtle ways if you tell them, if you demand them to do things. And so the example I use to to explain this is that it's it's a simple process of opt in and explicit agreement. So what 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 restaurants found was that if if you um. If you call up and, and ask for a reservation, they'll say, uh, thank you. We've got you down for 730, party of four. Call us if there are any changes. That was a demand. Mm. It's subtle, but it's a demand. Call mm. us if there are any changes. You're telling me what to do. Most people don't call back. <laughs> when they change that to, we've got you down, four people at 730. Would you please call us back if there are any changes? And then they pause. And then the person says Yes. Boom, dramatic improvement of the number of people calling back up because they they were given the chance to opt in and they agreed to do it, yeah. explicitly agreed to do it. And that's going on all the time in, in all kinds of relationships where people are assuming agreement. They're assuming alignment. They're assuming that if I said to do this, somebody will do this. Yeah, they might do it, but they're not going to put their heart and soul into it if, unless they feel they explicitly agreed to and had a chance to even say no. So, and I guess that's where it comes in. I know Zappos does a lot of this, but you have to, as an organization, you have to hire the right people, the people that the culture is, as you said, you can't change them. So it's something that they are already a strong proponent of that type of culture, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just the easiest way to do it. If you really can, <laughs> there's a back door to it in that, you know, what changes beliefs and values are experiences. So if you can give them an experience, where that 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 blows their minds, then it could potentially shift them because they've had a new experience. That's why we we would love bringing people into into the Zappos culture because they'd see it and they'd say like, oh, now I get it. I didn't get it before I saw it. And now what I do with teams is 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 other kinds of experiences. I actually use improv comedy as an experience to have them see, oh, this is what it feels like to really collaborate, and then they start to value it. So. There, there are chances that if they're open to it, you can take them through an experience that shifts beliefs. But by far the easiest way to do it is get people who already believe in those things that you already believe in. Now, I, I wrote this down earlier. You were talking about co-creating and how yeah. leaders specifically need to understand the co-creation and the ones that are stressed out don't necessarily, but they need to give up a little bit of control. Now, what do you recommend to – so say there's a leader who wants something done a certain way. And he um, or she, you know, delegates that task um, to to trust that the person they're delegating it to is going to do it the right way or the way they want it is is tough. How do you tell these leaders to, you know, set the system up so that they can trust that collaboration? So there's there's two things. There's the delegation aspect and then there's the values and principles aspect. So I was always amazed by how much um, autonomy 
I was given at Zappos to run this business line. And I realized it's because of the core values, that the core values took care of everything. And I knew um, based, on, based on experiences there that, that, that if I violated one of those, I'd be out the door. And so that those were the things that, like, that those were the implied rules already that I had to abide by that were going to be the standards. There was a goal set, and then there were the standards, which were the values. And when we talk about delegation – it's really more an idea of getting the picture of somebody's in somebody's mind out to the other person. So what does done look like? How are you going to evaluate this? Is it based on how pretty it looks, based on, on how many dollars, how many – how are you going to define success? Mm-hmm. And then how much checking in do you need? Is this something where you're giving them and you don't want to hear from them unless they need help? Do you want them to check in every week? Do you want feedback on A, B, and C but not E, F, and G? Like those are those are the kind of questions to ask, like to just bring bring clarity to the process. Because oftentimes leaders will assume this; they assume that the person is going to check in. Well, no, you didn't tell them to check in, or they're checking in every five minutes, and you didn't tell them to just give you a weekly update. And what are the standards of success? And then what kind of feedback are they looking to provide? And would you consider all of that information to be part of culture? Oh yeah, because it's all language. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense just as you were going through that because it's like these things, if not defined, can lead to anxiety or stress just due to miscommunication. Exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about specifically about your book, The Culture Blueprint. But before we get to that, because that's based on how to build a a high-performance workplace, what would your advice be to employees who are looking for employers that match the culture that they believe in? How can, how can an employee seek out and understand the culture of an employer? Sure. I, I like to think about it like a dating analogy, um, that you're looking to get married if you go in there. You're going to be spending probably more time there than with any other people. So think about it like you're dating them at first. And I, I say this not not like you're grilling them because obviously grilling somebody is not like a good date. You're going into this like a good date to just be curious and explore and ask interesting questions and just experience it and really get to know them just to get to know them. So that kind of energy and vibe and appreciation and acknowledgement and saying what you really like about it. I remember when I hired people, I, I saw this trend of the people I hired. They would always have great questions. They were always really fascinated and interested, and they would say something like this at the end. They would say to me, you know what? No matter who you pick for this, I'm just so thrilled that I got to to be here, that um, you know, I'm, I just love what you're doing, and I'm so glad you're doing this. And it was just this very kind of humble, appreciative line, and they ask great questions, and that's the way to find out. Is and, and treat it like flirting. That's what interviewing really is when it's done well. Is <laughs> is just flirting, and then never decide, never decide until there's a decision to be made. Because I'm I'm always amused by this because people will say, "Well, I'm not sure if I want to work at this company or not." I'll say, "Did you get a job offer?" <laughs> and they're like, "No, not yet." And I'm like, "Then you are stressing over a problem you don't have." Like keep on flirting and talking and getting to know them and don't even think about whether you want to work there or not until you have an offer. Get an offer and then stress about that decision and you'll have a good problem to have. Absolutely. And I think something there, and I love your take on this, but 
oftentimes the you know, all the advice out there is how to get a job. So I know when I was younger, I would go into interviews and I was very good at getting job offers, but I would come out with less information than I wanted. So I would go in just, how do I get this job? And now I realize it's much more important. How do I get this job if it's right for me and if it's mm-hmm. a right fit? So that flirting analogy is just, I mean, it's perfect because you have to have the confidence to actually seek out information as opposed to just sell yourself. Yes. Nobody likes to be sold. Nobody <laughs> ever likes to be sold. I really, I think that we need a new word or something. Cause I like, there are certain sales techniques and strategies and things like that, that I like, but the feeling of it is ugh, nobody likes it. People like just feeling like it's natural and it develops and, and you know that, that that people are doing things because they want to. Can you imagine trying to sell somebody into a relationship with you? I mean, that just sounds like disaster. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of um, Dan Pink, who we had on the show. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with this book, uh, To Sell as Human? I've got to read that. I've heard great things. Yeah, it just I've I've been a salesman in different roles, and I've always taken the approach. Uh, I just love talking to people. No, that's mm. just what I do. Yeah, and so. I was good at it and people would say, you're a good salesman. And I cringe because I hate pushing things on people. And his book kind of clarified for me, those days are gone, man. You can't push things on people anymore because they have the information. The internet has made it, you know, I think he calls it uh, information symmetry versus asymmetry in the past. Mm. You know, so he talks about like when you when you go to buy a car now, the consumer often knows more than the salesman, which (laughs) is which is fantastic. And it's amazing. Yeah. So let's jump into uh, with the last couple of minutes we have here, the culture blueprint, which is your book coming out. The subtitle is a guide to building the high performance workplace. And I think it's just fantastic because. As you mentioned, this has to happen because the revenues correspond to a strong culture. So it benefits everyone. Could you talk to me a little bit about the basis of this book? Sure. The basis was all the the companies I would talk to and realize their their challenges and what we're like about them and what, what really worked and what didn't. And it's 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 a guide. It's a step by step guide to everything from vision and values to how you get in the right people, to training them, bringing them into the company, developing a service-based culture, engaging people, developing leaders. Um, And what I'm really excited about is sharing the mentality the principles of culture, the, the essentially the tools that somebody can use to hack their own culture. Because I found that that's what's most important is when somebody owns it and says, oh, now I'm going to take this and I'm going to play with it. So I, I, I much rather the people take the principles that are in the book and apply those than the specific techniques because some of the, the techniques I think are great and you can play with those, but you always have to make it your own. It's never just this like heart transplant mm-hmm. in there. Um, so I teach the principles of culture hacking such that they can take it, play with it, have fun with it, and make it their own. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, does this apply to, say, a solopreneur? What Somebody who's just, they work for themselves. Do you think that they need to clearly define their culture in their, in their mind or even on paper? I, I do because even for the solo entrepreneur, what it comes down to, it's, it's, it's less the internal communication because you're not talking to yourself so much, or maybe you are. <laughs> um, and then it's, it's more about the habits and rituals. What are you doing every day? What are you doing every week? That becomes the culture. You know, every morning at 10, I, I do this. Like, where, where are you integrating your inspiration sources? Where are you integrating a ritual around reaching out to your network of support? Where is the, everything can kind of come down to a ritual that defines your, your solopreneur culture. Hmm. 
And you mentioned in the book, it was it's basically a compilation of a lot of things you've learned, what worked, what didn't. I was wondering if you could give us maybe your top uh, recommendation for what, what works and what has worked and then what doesn't when building culture in an organization. Sure. Well, I'll start with what doesn't. What does not work, and this is time and again, and I, I hope people don't have to learn the hard way through this because it can be a really hard lesson to learn, is mandates telling people they have to do X, Y, or Z without including them in the process. And that's anything from a simple task to an enterprise-wide rollout of an initiative or a new software package. When it's just said, here, this is what you're going to do now, do this, people disengage. And you don't even see it immediately. You can't even see it sometimes. It's just behind the scenes. Whereas if they're integrated in the process – um, and they get to opt in and they get to choose if they're going to be a part of it. And it starts small and it grows. That's how you build it organically. So the thing not to do is just to roll something out and say, we're doing this and everybody do it in, in any of its forms. Cause you're going to get a lot of disengagement. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was just thinking, so how do you, sorry, cause I know I do want to get the, what works the best, but if you're the CEO and you have this project, you really want to start or you believe in, how do you get that enrollment without mandating it? Here's the risk. You might not. Mm. Because the thing is, culture, culture's running the show. Your team is running it. Your team is running your company. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. So do you want them being totally checked out, running your initiative? Great. They ran your, they're running your initiative, but they don't care. They're not giving their most excellence to it. They're wondering when it's going to stop. They're, they might even be subconsciously sabotaging it. Like, But you got your initiative out. You know, it's, it's, to me, it's, 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 it's totally counterintuitive. When you get culture, you get that I, this will not work unless I have the full engagement. So part of the test is this, is you start to see, wait a minute, is there a huge level of resistance? And if there is, and like, like let's say you just have to, let's say it's some kind of Sarbanes-Oxley, like <laughs> we absolutely have to do this. We're not getting out of this kind of move, right? Even then. You can still have an open conversation about it and, and let people voice their frustrations and how pissed off they are and what this is going to affect and change and get that all out on the table. Like even that is way better than simply just saying, look, we got to do this. It's the law. Yeah. That, no, that, that's fantastic. I'm so glad we got that question in. Makes so much sense. And then uh, just to follow up and finish that out, what do you think is the best thing or the number one thing to do to uh, build culture? I, I'd say there are so many because it's all done on on such a um, micro level, right? And you know, I I I could say that it's it's vision and values because those are really guiding it, but that's kind of like the, ver- the like the health food answer. If I tell you, you know, <laughs> you want to be healthy, eat, eat vegetables and fruits and work out every day. I yep. mean, it's not the sexiest tip. So the sexier tip I'll say is to experiment with making every meeting completely optional. And opening it up to anybody who wants to come. That's the real high leverage. Like you'll notice a huge shift in culture immediately. When I did this, I remember I decided to experiment with it. And I threw this meeting and I, I, I knew certain people, I wanted them to be there based on their job description. Like I need them to be doing this kind of thing. And certain of those people didn't show up. Mm. And other people who I thought wouldn't even care about the project came. And they were like, ooh, I want to talk about this. And it was the best meeting I've ever been through. It was six hours long. It flew by in like a half hour. People were laughing, having fun. We got a lot done. We had a third-party vendor in there who was says who said, if this is your team for this project, you can't fail. Wow. Like there's so much energy and engagement in it. And I didn't think I had the quote-unquote right people in the room. 
Wow. So I love make that. it yeah. optional. Say, hey, 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 look, I know you got a lot of things to do. I trust you're here because you're a great employee. So if you feel it's irrelevant or it's not interesting, don't show up. If you do feel it's interesting, show up and see what happens. Real quick, uh, you meant you said something there. You know, I trust you're a good employee because you're here. What do you think? I know it goes both ways in organizations. They say, look, once we've hired you, that means we trust you to do good work. So we don't feel like we need to tell you that or, you know, give you the trophy as a lot of people complain about millennials. What is your stance on, you know, rewarding people or telling them they're doing a good job or telling them when they're not doing a good job? Hmm. I, I well, the, the the most important point I would say on that is that it really needs to happen while it's happening. In the sense of, if it happens a week later or a month later, it's just become irrelevant. So the 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 most important thing to to do within that is to offer the feedback, whether positive or negative, when it's happening, because that's mm-hmm. when people can learn. That's when they have the most tangible experience of it. And so. That's where I see the people making the mistakes. They'll, they'll, they'll do their monthly recognition as opposed to how can you do it on the job, during the job. Absolutely. Well, Robert, again, thank you so much. I know your book, The Culture Blueprint, A Guide to Building the High-Performance Workplace, is is doing great. We're going to link to it on this blog post. Uh, where else can listeners go to learn more about you and, and see what you're doing? I know you're you're out there, so would love for them to be able to find you. Sure. It's it's robertrichman.com. So Robert and R-I-C-H-M-A-N.com. All right. Great. Well, thank you again so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, Robert. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Robert Richmond. Remember, you can pre-order his book, The Culture Blueprint, A Guide to Building the High-Performance Workplace on Amazon. It comes out in mid-January 2015. We're really excited to get our hands on that book. Uh, Just a reminder, if you want to support the show, the easiest way to do so is head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and click the Amazon banner there. And while you're doing your Amazon purchases, you can throw a little money our way at no cost to you. We truly do appreciate that. If you enjoyed this show or any of the shows before this, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a rating and review there. That truly does help us out. We love to see what you guys think of the show, how we can improve what we're doing well, all that good stuff. If you want to get in contact with us, you can shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Chris and I always look forward to getting messages from you guys. So thank you in advance for that. And we will see you next week.